morning. I'm Abigail Pecklow. Uh, please join me in the scripture from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 28. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such with an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make an intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and, a, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to take you back to March of 1863 to start this morning. 18-year-old Charlie walked out of his family home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, boarded a train for Washington, D.C. to join the Union Army. Oldest of six, it was less than two years since his mother died. Her dress caught on fire. His dad tried to put out the fire, but he was not able to save her life. She died the next day. So Charlie joined the Union Army. He missed the Battle of Gettysburg, that horrific battle July 1 to 3 of that year, because he had typhoid fever. But in the fall of that year, in fact, November the 27th, he was in the battle, in a battle of the Mine Run campaign in Virginia, and was shot in the shoulder. It, ended, it entered his left shoulder, the bullet did, across his back exited his right shoulder after grazing his spine, and he feared paralysis. Of course, his dad and rest of his family 
knew by then that he had joined the army, received word about this, left Cambridge to be by his side in Washington, where he was taken for recovery. And on Christmas Day of 1863, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, still grieving the death of his wife, greatly concerned about his son, heard the church bells ring on Christmas Day and wrote these words. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's not the whole song. He continued writing and bared his soul. Then from each black accursed mouth the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Now remember, this is the Civil War. We have 600,000 plus who have died because of this war. About that many, who knows how many were injured. That's the context. He continues, it was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then he closed with this stanza. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. So how was your Christmas? Longfellow captured the tension that we should all feel in the Advent season. The celebration that Christ has come, but also in the midst of this difficult world, the longing for the fulfillment of the promise that Christ is coming again, because all things are not yet right. Now, this is reflected in many of the songs of the season. Um, Sometimes they're too familiar for us to pay attention to them, unfortunately. And and so we need to come back to them. Uh, One of the most popular carols by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World. The Lord has come, let earth receive her king. The focus is on King Jesus and the end of the curse. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. The painful reality for every farmer and rancher since Adam. The longing for that to be lifted, that judgment. But far greater sorrows than the fight to make a living from the ground, the the death and the suffering that's all around us and still with us. Jesus came, but all the suffering did not end in Bethlehem. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Yes, 
Many of these blessings are ours today as the gospel has impacted our lives and we take it to the world. But then Watts goes on to say he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. Yes, that's a great promise, but it's not fully realized as despots and strongman rulers still think they're in charge. Christ has come, but oh, how we long for his coming again. Two or three things this Advent season, which is now over, this is the first Sunday after Advent, but have stood out to me that's made this more real, I guess, um, this joy that Christ has come, but also the longing for his return. And, and one of them is this series in Hebrews, as Pastors Jeff and Joey have faithfully uh, led us uh, through this marvelous, marvelous book. And then uh, two and a half weeks ago, Linda and I attended the uh, performance of Messiah. Uh, it's been a couple of years since I've been to that, walking us through the scripture, that incredible trip through the, the, the Bible of the promises of the first coming of Christ, the birth of Jesus, his incredible suffering and death, his ascension, and then the prophecies of his coming again. Uh, it clearly emphasizes both the first and second advents. And then a few days ago, I finished my annual read-through of the Bible in this glorious ending in the book of Revelation. Uh, where Jesus comes to rule and reign, defeating all the rulers of this world. Visibly, he now is the unrivaled king of righteousness as you come to the end of the book. A glorious promise. But we're still waiting for that. It's yet to come. Well, it's my delight to open God's Word with you today from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 28. And if I could put this sermon in one sentence, it would be something like this. The provision of the first advent of Christ sustains us today. As in a painful world, we await the fulfillment of the promises of the second advent of Christ. Let me say it again. I'll have it on the screen later in the sermon but the provision of the first advent of Christ, and we'll look at what some of those provisions are, they sustain us this very day in the midst of our painful struggles in this world as we long for and await the fulfillment of the promises of the second advent of Christ. Well, Hebrews 7 uh, we continue with uh, what some call the mystery man of the Bible, a character named Melchizedek who comes out of nowhere in Genesis 14. I kind of got a jump on next year's 2019 Bible reading, and so I went ahead and started Genesis a couple of days ago, and I read chapter 14 today. And uh, just, I didn't plan it that way, but uh, here we run into this fellow named Melchizedek. Only three verses in the Bible narrative. And if those three verses disappeared, you wouldn't notice a break in the flow. It flows better, actually, with those three verses gone. But they're not gone. They're there. The Holy Spirit put them there for a reason. It's very strange, though, to us. They're the only 
verses in the biblical narrative about this guy. He gives a blessing to Abraham, receives a tithe or a tenth of the spoils of war from Abraham when he came back victorious over some local mayor kings, and, and then he just disappears. And as you read the Old Testament narrative, it, it seems an odd and irrelevant detail unworthy of any particular focus. But it's not the case. It is relevant. So we'd better pick up the detail. His name means King, Melchi, King of Zedek Righteousness. He is identified also as the King of Salem and priest of God Most High. Salem means peace is the word that leads into Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that became Israel's capital under King David a thousand years later. But again, nothing in Scripture indicates prior to really David's time that Jerusalem's of any particular significance uh, or Melchizedek. After this little three-verse reference, uh, Melchizedek disappears. Moses doesn't tie into it. And, and as you read on through, you forgot about him a long time ago, and, and you don't really think anything about it. It's just an odd detail in the Bible. Until we read the Psalms. And we come to Psalm 110, a thousand years after Abraham and Melchizedek. And David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, finds Melchizedek worthy of mention. But then he disappears again. No reference in the rest of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Uh, the prophets don't say any, anything about him. He's, we go on into the New Testament. Jesus doesn't mention him. Paul doesn't mention him. He's gone. <laughs> and then we come to Hebrews. And he pops up again. 2,000 years after Abraham in Genesis 14... A thousand years after David in Psalm 110, Hebrews 5, 5 and 6 combines quotes from Psalm 2-7 and Psalm 110-4, prophecies of Messiah. Psalm 2, you are my son, today I've begotten you. In Psalm 110, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And we don't have a clue what that's about. But then Hebrews 7 highlights him again, and we can no longer pass this off as just a irrelevant comment because chapter 7 gives us a whole chapter about Melchizedek. Well, it's actually about Jesus, but the Melchizedek figure is prominent in this chapter about Jesus. Now, Pastor Joey introduced the character last week in the first 10 verses of Hebrews 7, um, verse 3, without uh, a father or mother or genealogy, neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, Joey said, and I agree with him, this doesn't mean Melchizedek didn't have a mom and dad. It doesn't mean he wasn't born. It doesn't mean he didn't die. It's just that those details that are highly relevant in much of the biblical text around many, many key individuals 
isn't relevant here, not those details. It's not relevant as to why Melchizedek is mentioned. He was not also, we would say, not a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, which some have suggested. Uh, I don't think that's a correct understanding because it says resembling the Son of God, not He is the Son of God. So we take it that Melchizedek is a typological or figurative symbolic introduction to an aspect of who and what Christ, who He is and what Christ will be when He comes. And it feeds right into our theme for Hebrews that Christ is greater than. I, I hope you won't forget who Christ is greater than. The list is growing, greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua. He's a better revelation and has greater glory, a greater king, a greater mediator. We can have greater confidence to enter into a greater rest with greater certainty. He's the great high priest. Jesus is greater than anything we can think of. With this example of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, also called a priest of God most high, we circle back to this theme that Jesus is our great high priest. Pastor Nathan unpacked that for us uh, Sunday after Thanksgiving and really introduced what we've been looking at ever since then. He is our great high priest, greater than any other with the climax for us, unlike any other high priest, that this high priest is able to save can actually make a difference in our lives for what we truly need. Now, when you think about priests in the Bible, if, if you know the Old Testament, you know that the priests all come, uh, for Israel, all come from the tribe of Levi, from whom Moses and his brother Aaron came and uh, they were set apart to be the priests with Aaron, designated as the high priest and the succession of his sons. And this is true all the way into the New Testament and beyond. The apostle John, who wrote the fourth gospel, uh, writes this, uh, re referencing John the Baptist, another John. This was John's testimony, that is about Jesus, when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. It was the priestly caste that was disturbed about Jesus early on. They were the ones that were raising the questions, that were trying to, to trap him. People in general, they were pretty excited. They came out in the thousands to hear Jesus teach and to receive his healing touch or healing words, all kinds of ways that was given. is the priestly caste that rejected him and insisted that Rome crucify him. But his point here is that Jesus wasn't of that priestly caste, but a better one. Jesus descends from a, pre a better priestly line, which is the point of the entire chapter here. 
But look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So we'll address that question today. What's better about the priestly line of Jesus? We're going to do a series of contrasts in this explanation or argument of the text that appeals to several pieces of evidence on this difference between the priesthood of Jesus and the priesthood, Levitical, Aaronic priesthood of Israel. First, first, unlike the Levitical priests, Jesus was not a Levite. He was not a descendant of Aaron the high priest, with all his successors. He was from the tribe of Judah, a descendant through David. Verses 13 and 14, For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from whom no one has ever served at the altar, not legitimately. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, In connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. The descendants of Judah can't be priests. And yet Jesus was a descendant of Judah. Priests don't come from Judah, but from Levi. But Jesus, declared to be the high priest, now does come from the tribe of Judah. Now, on one level, this shouldn't be a surprise if you've already put some of the other pieces together because all the way back to Genesis 49. As Jacob is dying, Israel is his name also. As he's dying, he gives the blessing to all of his sons. Some of them are more curses than blessings. But it's his fourth son. Not the first one, Reuben. Not the third one, Levi. But it's the fourth one, Judah, to whom he said the scepter who holds the scepter, the king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, this may still be confusing because this is a prophecy of kingship, not priesthood. But verse 15 is making the point that saying, He doesn't come from Levi, he comes from Judah, so something's very different here. But the real issue here is that his priesthood doesn't come from Judah. It can't come from Judah because that's not the priestly tribe. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God, king of righteousness, is not from Levi or Judah. He's not related to them. He came before them. But Melchizedek combines the throne and the altar. Kingship and priesthood. King of righteousness and priest of Most High God. Jesus is a descendant of Judah through David, but his kingship And his priesthood do not ultimately come from either Judah or Levi. He's a different kind of priest and a different kind of king after the order of Melchizedek. 
king of righteousness. So, this mystery man of whom we have no genealogy, no record of birth or death, represents one to come who is outside both Judah and Levi, who is a type of the Messiah to come, both priest and uh, king. And as Joey said last Sunday, and I wrote it down as he said it, when Melchizedek, what Melchizedek is literarily, Jesus is literally. What Melchizedek is by name, Jesus is by nature. Number two, unlike the legally authorized Levitical priests, Jesus is not limited by the weakness of the law of Moses, which fails to save anyone, but a better hope in the priesthood of Jesus. Look at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment that is regarding the priesthood is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, how do you feel about hearing someone say that the law is weak and useless? That sounds like blasphemy. I mean, haven't you read Psalm 1? The law is my delight. Haven't you read Psalm 19? The law of the Lord is perfect. Not weak and useless. It's perfect. Restoring the soul. (laughs) And then Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Longest chapter in the Bible exalts the law of God, 176 verses in which almost every verse has a reference to the law of God and tells us how wonderful it is. And then Hebrews comes along and seems to disparage the law and calls it weak and useless. Why? Context. 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 The only way we're really going to get context and be comfortable with context is as we continue to read and learn the whole Bible and see the whole flow and what each part, how it fits together. It's glorious. Every time I read through, I get a new understanding, a deeper level of understanding and how wonderful that is. The context is so important. I love Moody Radio. It's one of the stations I listen to and... uh, Yet this morning, as I was listening to some wonderful music and the introduction to a song or two before the music, I just wanted to cry out, Brother, context, context, context. We quote this verse here and this verse here, and we lose the context, and we don't know what it's about. God is good to us in spite of our weakness. But... My friends, don't misunderstand what is being said here. The law is God's glorious gift to reveal His righteousness, 
to reveal our sin, to teach us how to live. The, the law in its essence is not weak and useless. It's very useful. And it's called perfect. Learn the law. Love the law. Memorize the Ten Commandments. Teach them to your children. Do Ten Commandment drills. Make sure they know them. They're vitally important. The law is good, even perfect. But context, the law is useless and weak, has no ability to save you. Does a great job of showing us that we need to be saved as we mess up, but it can't save us. Nor can the priesthood that comes out of the law. When you say law, you don't just mean the Ten Commandments. You don't just mean all the other 613 commandments total or whatever. It also includes all of the priesthood and all the rituals. That's all the law, the law of Moses. None of that can save us. Not by the blood of bulls and goats. That comes later in Hebrews. So we need a better priesthood, a better hope by which we draw nearer to God. Number three, unlike the successor Levitical priest to Aaron, Jesus is not our great high priest by succession, but by divine appointment. Now, Aaron was the first high priest. When it was about time for him to die, Moses knew he was about to die. And see, he went ahead and and, and took his priestly garments off of him and transferred them to his son, Aaron's son, Eliezer. And later on, we see the same similar thing in Joshua 24. As Eliezer dies, the priesthood, the high priesthood, is passed on to Phinehas, his son. And on through the centuries, this is how it's done with some anomalies. Verse 16, Jesus did not gain the high priesthood by succession. It says, who has become a priest? Not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. So then how did Jesus come to be the high priest? Verse 15, another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. How? He again contrasts Jesus with the Levites. Verses 20 and 21, it is, and this is a little tricky because it's a double negative, and you've got to remember whether, what's, what's, what it's saying here. It was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord is sworn, will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. And I'm just going to try to cut through what might be a little bit of fog there and simply say God made this high priest a high priest by divine appointment. Jesus is made a high priest by divine appointment, not by succession. Not by whose son he was in the flesh. So God made this divine appointment of Jesus to be the high priest who would be and do what no other priest could ever be and do. Number four. Unlike the temporary Levitical priest, Jesus was not temporary as they all were, but a priest 
forever. Verses 23 and 24, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They had term limits. By the way, you do too. The term limits are death. Even Supreme Court justices have term limits. It's called death. That's the term limits for the priests. They're prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Verse 16, who's become a priest by the power of an indestructible life. Now, what does that mean? I wrestled with that just a little bit. At first I thought, well, is that the resurrection of Jesus? Well, perhaps. But even more, it's what is already established, I believe, in well, in the Old Testament, but also reiterated in Hebrews chapter 1 very clearly. In fact, you can find Hebrews 1 pretty quickly. Take a look at it. Turn back to it. Hebrews 1, 8 to 14. I believe the contrast is with angels, as Jesus is greater than angels, if I remember correctly. But uh, early on, it says this. But of the Son, he says, verse 8, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, Jesus is being called God and Lord here, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. He's going back and saying, Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim created the heavens and the earth. That is, we now know, they couldn't have understood it all then, but this is the Trinity. This is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who created the world. We've gotten this distinction sometimes. Sometimes we under-distinguish between the members of the Trinity and sometimes we over-distinguish. And one of the false ideas that we get is, oh, it's the Father who's the Creator, Jesus is the Savior, and the Holy Spirit is the, is the one who indwells and empowers us for Christian living. Well, the Bible says that Jesus is the Creator. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in creation. Verse 11, they will perish, that is the heavens and the earth, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Jesus is our forever high priest. No term limits on him. No term limits. Number five, this is the last distinction, unlike... The sinful Levitical priests, Jesus was not a sinner who had to atone for his own sins as they all did, but offered himself as a sacrifice for others. Aaron, before he was even ordained as the first high priest of Israel, was left in charge while Moses went up to the mountain. Remember the story? And he decides to satisfy the desires of the people by making them a golden calf, idol to worship. And he's the first high priest. 
he could come to my ordination council, I'd have turned him down. Well, actually, the requirements for eldership, for leadership in the New Testament church are significantly more stringent than to be a priest or a king of Old Testament Israel in terms of the standards that are set that must be, kept, must be held. The abuses of the priests, a long record of failure and disqualification, they needed their own Me Too movement in Israel. Eli's sons, the worst on that list of abusers, It was the high priest and chief priest who demanded that Rome crucify Jesus. You look at the record of the priest, you look at Aaron himself, the first one, and you say, aren't you glad we have a better high priest than that? And we do. Now, as I try to move toward the finish, I just want to make a list of things here that are our blessings under our great high priest Jesus. We've alluded to some of them already. There's some that are really unpacked later in Hebrews over the next two or three chapters. Several of these are unpacked in greater detail, and and, uh, Pastors Jeff and Joy will will do that for us as we come to them. So uh, we're just going to mention these, make a list so that we can kind of see them all together and celebrate them, and uh, then the development will come later. But here it is, better hope, verse 19, that will allow us to draw near to God. A better covenant, Jesus, verse 22, is the guarantor of a better covenant, a better priesthood. He continues forever, verse 21, 23, and 24. He's a better Savior. He's able to save to the uttermost, 25a. He's a better reconciler, verse 25b, draw near to God through Him. He's a better mediator, always lives to make intercession, verse 25. He's a better character. Oh my, is he a better character, holy, innocent, unstained. There's no other like that. He's a better glory, exalted above the heavens, also verse 26. A better sacrifice once for all when he offered himself, verse 27. As Jesus was on the cross for those six hours uh, going through the, the, the suffering of the physical suffering of crucifixion, but even, I believe, the greater suffering of the wrath of God for my sin and yours. And near the end of that time, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then after a period of time, he cries out the glorious cry, It is finished. The sacrifice was fully paid, and Hebrews has a lot more to say about that, so we'll wait. And then number 10, a better son who's made perfect forever, verse 28. Now, how does this relate uh, to us today? Let me come back to that effort I made earlier to put this sermon in a single sentence, and I'll let you see it on the screen The provisions of the first advent of Christ sustain us as in a painful, painful, difficult world, we await the promises of the second advent of Christ to be fulfilled. I don't have to tell you that life is hard. The Bible tells us to expect it. 
It's, it's all over the place as you read the New Testament. Life's hard. We're often challenged to make a list of blessings from God and be thankful, and we just did that, and we are to be thankful, to give thanks in all circumstances. We have these blessings from our great high priest. That should always encourage and give us a focus on him in the midst of our challenges. But after you've made your list of blessings, my guess is if I gave you another piece of paper and said, make a list of your difficulties, make a list of your hardships, make a list of your sufferings, that uh, it wouldn't take you long to put down three or four or five, maybe ten very quickly. And maybe they're not so much your personal sufferings right now, but, but within your sphere of acquaintance or even close, intimate friends, there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurt. A lot of difficulty. Life is hard as we wait for Christ's return. It's an ongoing, never-ending saga of suffering and loss. You know, I think you can just take any time period and, and, and think of a few items that kind of stand out. Here closer to home, I'm more affected by some of the things you are going through than I am the things that I've mentioned in my family. Uh, many of you with loved ones in health difficulties or older saints near death or huge losses recently in the deaths of loved ones, some way too young within our church family. These things are so painful. They're so hard. But the things we're less willing to talk about and be transparent with at least more than maybe one or two, if that many, is if we're in marriage crisis or if family challenges with our children and grandchildren and broken relationships and financial struggles. Relationships are very complex. In some cases, even more difficult to face than illness and death, which we're more open about. But we hide these other things. Don't do that. Confide in other believers. Now, the reality is we can't make bad things good. But we can rejoice in the provisions of the first advent as we await the glorious promise of the second advent. Again, reading, finishing the trip through the Bible in 2018, a few days ago, reading the, you know, the first two chapters of the Bible are the glorious creation of God and marriage, made in His image to know Him and to fellowship with Him. Chapter 3, everything falls apart, and then the rest of the way, it's a, a tale of, of death and destruction, sin, and yet God's rescue plan through His Son. But you don't get to the really good news that's being fulfilled until you get into the new heavens and the new earth, the last two chapters, first two chapters and the last two chapters. And so I'm reading about all this, and John's, I take this as John's response, who's receiving all these visions and writing these things down as he steps into the story and says, he who testifies to these things says, uh, this, is, this is Jesus saying this, and then his response to it, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. 
And then I take it as John responding, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. So may we hold firmly to the hope that is ours as the provisions of the first advent sustain us in this painful world as we await the fulfillment of the promises of the second advent and the coming of Christ in person. One of my favorite songs, I have about a thousand, but uh, one of them is Christ is Mine Forevermore. A newer hymn published in 2015. We've done it a few times here, but even if it's new to you, uh, maybe it's better if it's new to you, focus on the words, celebrate the words of the provision of Christ in the new advent with the hope of the promises of the second advent. And be encouraged as we live between the two advents of our great high priest, our glorious Savior who is able to save, the Lord Jesus Christ.